Hi there. Thanks for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. We're a church in the great city of San Francisco, and our heart is that everyone would experience true sanctuary in Jesus. This week on the podcast, we have a guest speaker and a one-off message, uh, and my hope is that this would encourage you and equip you, and really, we're just so honored that you would listen in. So, here it is. All right, so today I want to look at the idea of community, uh, unpacking a value that you find throughout the Bible that we as humans have been made for community. Uh, if you have a Bible uh, hand or a Bible app, you can feel free to open it to 1 John. Uh, it's one of the last books of the Bible, tiny little book, uh, 1 John chapter 3. We'll kind of be hanging out in that space. Um, I've got some other texts that might come up, I think, on the screen at any point. Um, but, you know, if you have a Bible Bible app, hang out in 1 John chapter 3. So while you're going there, let me give you a little bit of context here. Uh, Jesus was once asked by a skeptic, a teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, the sort of famous thing, maybe you've heard this before, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When Jesus answered this question that the skeptic had asked him, he was summing up the whole of the Old Testament's teaching. He was telling his audience basically the essence of this faith that he was um, teaching about, the Bible, all of this, was that the Bible teaches that humans were made to love God and to love people. Christianity, it's not just a relationship with humans and God. It's also about how we relate to other people. It's about community. Uh, which is why churches exist, right? Because God's call is not just for us to build our own individual relationship with God. Maybe you felt that time, why do I need to go to church? I already have a relationship with God. I can pray or watch worship videos and better sermons on YouTube. Uh, because you need to be around other people, right? That it's not just a you, God thing, but it's a us together, loving one another thing. Uh, we might even think that we can love other people apart from loving God. Like you might think, man, I'm good at loving others. I don't need to know this God. Uh, but I think the Bible might disagree with us on that. Uh, obviously, I want to say, like, everybody, don't hear, mishear me, is capable of loving other people without loving God first. I, I don't, you know, we're all made in God's image. We have that capacity. But I do think, and I'll come back to this a little bit later, but the love of God is what sustains us and empowers us to truly love others in an enduring way. That there's something unique about this flow from God uh, that we experience that allows us to sustain over a long time with difficult people and ourselves being difficult, true, enduring love for one another. So we cannot love God, um, uh, we, we cannot love other people if we don't love God very well. And we actually also, the Bible has some really interesting words. It says we can't, we don't love God if we don't love people. So First uh, John 4, 8 says this, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's a really interesting text. Um, that there are a lot of people, right, we might have experienced this, that claim to love God but don't actively love others. In fact, they might even hate other people. Maybe you've been around people who are Christians uh, who are like this, right? And John would say of these people, if they hate others, they don't even know God. That's really strong words, right? That's a really strong statement. Um, and because he's, But I think what's happening is he's connecting these two concepts. In order for us to live the life that we were made for, in order for sanctuary to be the kind of church that God has made it to be, uh, people who call sanctuary home must love God and love other people. Can't have one without the other. We can't focus on one and neglect the other. And so this morning, I just want to look at some ways that sanctuary church and us as believers can be the kind of loving community that God designed. 
a community that loves God and a community that loves people. Uh, John gives us some insights for creating this kind of community in 1 John, and what he says, it's just basically all about love. So here's our point. Uh, big idea. Our community and relationships should be defined by love. That's the big major takeaway. And I'm going to have four points and a little aside. This love is going to be countercultural. This love is self-sacrificing. This love is Christ-centered. And this love is tangible. So that's where we're headed. Give me about 25 minutes and we'll be done. Uh, Jesus, the night before he was crucified, after he was washing his disciples' feet, he says this to them. This is John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I love that the instruction in the text that we're looking at, 1 John 3, which happens probably 20, 30 years after Jesus had died, uh, was written decades after Jesus gave this new commandment to love one another. Uh, it says that for this mess is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. This is what it says in 1 John 3. And it's like this little confirmation that what Jesus told his disciples when he washed their feet to love one another, like, actually happened. Like, John can say later, just like you have always known, we're supposed to love one another. The message that Jesus passed down and taught was passed on and taught to others. And the message was still, when John writes this letter decades later, that the followers of Jesus are to love one another. It's like Jesus and the apostles have played, like, the most successful game of telephone of all time. Uh, you know that game, like, is any, maybe this is like a, uh, I'm an older millennial, but like, uh, I don't know people like telephone, but it's this game, you know, you whisper in someone's ear, they tell someone, and then at the end, you're like, what they say? Like, my kids are terrible at this game. I have five kids. I know that's a lot of kids. So we can play games like this. Um, but the early church, like, they crushed it at telephone. They didn't even have telephones, and they dominated the game of telephone. For decades across cultures and countries, the message that Jesus gave had been accurately passed on. Love one another. So much so that John can, like, lean on that tradition and say, just like you have heard from the beginning. And it saddens me to wonder, is the same true today? Is the dominant thing that you know about Christianity, that your neighbors know about Christianity, is that it is a message of love, of God's love for you, of for us, and of Christians' love for one another. I'd worry that it's not. I think the, my fear is that the experience most people have of Christianity is woefully anemic, far too often defined by something, many other things, than love. And I just want to say, friends, like that kind of community, that kind of church, whatever it is, if it's not defined by love, it's not what we were made for. It's not what God intends for sanctuary. Uh, in the early church, which definitely had all kinds of problems, and you can read about them in the New Testament, uh, but nevertheless, the early church seems to be genuinely defined by a collection of communities defined by love. Uh, if you read church history, you see this time and time again, like early church history, that Christian communities, these little churches, were known by their love for God, their love for one another, and their love for the wider world. It was like a, a mark, marked thing, even by outsiders looking in. And this love, it caused them to stand out, which leads to kind of our first point. Number one, this love is countercultural. Our, our community and our relationships should be defined by a love that's countercultural. Uh, there's a theologian, African theologian named Tertullian, uh, in the second and third century, so a long time ago. He wrote that the outside world took note of Christians and would exclaim, behold, how they love one another. Tertullian described a Christian community that stood in contrast to the Roman society of his day. 
Roman society, if you've been to Rome, you know they love gladiators, all kinds of stuff, people facing off to the death. Uh, this is the opposite in the pre-Roman societies. It's the opposite of a Christian community where people readily uh, were ready to die for one another and they demonstrated this insane love when they faced persecution. Uh, Tertullian, he argued that deep love, commitment, and affection of Christians for one another would stand out in a culture of suspicion and selflessness, selfishness. The argument was the basis of Tertullian's famous phrase, behold how they love one another, referring to this powerful witness of mutual love and respect that was in the Christian community. Uh, there's another early church father, Justin Martyr. He was born in Samaria in the second century. He wrote of the Christian community, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. Or Clement of Alexandria, another Greek comfort, also in the second century. He describes a way of, uh, the, the way of Christians living and saying this, that a Christian impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain that he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having giving out of his own, given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. This is radical truly countercultural community. Uh, 1,800 years ago, people were doing this. Christians were doing this. They were known by their love, and this made them stand out. They loved God, and it changed how they lived. They loved one another, and they sacrificed for one another. They loved one another. They loved the people around them, and they lived among the people. This is a really interesting thing, but they lived differently. And their love is really what made them stand out. There was a lot of religious communities at that time when you would, you know, a new religion would happen. They would almost like separate themselves off into their own world or their own city or their own place. And Christians didn't do that. It was a kind of a unique thing. Uh, and this morning, I, I want to read a letter as well. I'm giving a lot of church history context because I think it's helpful to realize that the, the people that came immediately after Christ really got this. And we can get back to that. So I want to read one of my favorite like pieces of Christian history. Uh, it's a letter that someone wrote as a Christian uh, about 100 years after Jesus died, to explain to a non-Christian friend who had no real sense of what Christians were about, uh, what this new faith was all about. Uh, and the section that I want to read is a description of how Christians live and how they were known at that time. Uh, so it was written 1,900 years ago, long description, but it's a great letter, the letter to Diogenetus. Christians are not distinguished from other men by country, language, nor by the customs which they observe. They do not inhabit cities of their own, use a particular way of speaking, nor lead a life marked out by any curiosity. The course, their course of conduct they follow has not been devised by the speculation and deliberation of inquisitive men. They do not, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of merely human doctrines. Instead, they inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities. However, things have fallen to each of them. And it's while following the customs of the natives in clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary life, they display to us their wonderful and admittedly striking way of life. They live in their own countries, but they do so as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is like their homeland to them, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. They marry, like everyone else, and they have children, 
but they do not destroy their offspring. He's talking about like the, the idea of exposure, if you've ever heard of this, that in the ancient society, if there was something wrong with the baby or they didn't want it, they would often just leave the baby uh, out to be, to be, to die because of nature or animals or something. They didn't do that. He says they share a common table, but not a common bed. The way they lived among each other sexually was different than the world. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. Surprise. They are unknown and condemned. They put to death. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor yet make many rich. They lack everything yet they over. They lack everything yet they overflow in everything. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are spoken ill of, and yet are justified. They are reviled, but blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if raised from the dead. They are assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. Isn't that a beautiful letter? Interesting um, Instruction. It feels so relevant, even though it's 1,900 years old. That we see this picture of Christians who were in the world, but they weren't of it. And they didn't stand out because they lived in a special enclave, or they spoke special religious language. On the surface, they looked just like the people around them, but their actions were different. Their love for God changed the way that they lived. They loved all people, and yet this love didn't mean that the world around them appreciated them. Is that interesting to you? I just want to make that distinction here. Sometimes I think we want Christians, we want to be known as people who love because really we want people to like us. And what I want to say here is I, I, we want to be known by love, but we don't necessarily, we aren't promised that that's going to mean people like us. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 13, it says this, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Uh, the Christians described in the letter to Diogenetus are said to be spoken ill of, reviled, insulted, punished, assailed, and persecuted. Again, surprising, right? Because it seems like if Christians were so loving, why would they be persecuted and disliked? It's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, and I think the way we can, the, we often think about the way we can tell if a person is a Christian is loving people is to ask people around them, do you like this person? You know, is this, is this a likable person? But really what happens in this text and what happens historically, and if you think about it, this, this isn't what happened to Jesus. You know, people didn't look at him and think, oh man, it's a really likable guy necessarily. Some were impressed by the way that he loved. Some were threatened or embarrassed and thought it was even immoral in some ways for him to hang out with certain kinds of people. And, you know, you look at Jesus and you just think he was constantly being threatened by people around him, even though he was the most, like, loving person that you can imagine. Pharisees, Sadducees, Jewish authorities, Roman officials. Eventually he's beaten, falsely accused, and crucified, even though he was perfect at loving others. And maybe you've read or you can remember what Jesus said in John 15, 20. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also, per- also persecute you. And so I just want to say, if you were to live the kind of loving life that God made for you to live, it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be liked. It's going to require you to radically love others, to love people society finds repulsive or dangerous. And really, I think that's maybe why Christians were persecuted, because they loved people their wider culture didn't value. They loved their enemies, and this upset the power structures of their day. They didn't love the same gods and idols of their society, and every society has things that they teach us to love. They didn't love those things. Instead, they loved the God of the Bible. They loved their neighbors. They loved Jesus. And this dual love, this radical love of God, this radical love for neighbors, uh, it impresses and it also threatens the world. And we cannot expect this kind of love to mean that we're universally liked. 
That's not what we're promised here. That's not what we're after. How well we are liked is not the barometer of our success of how well we are loving others. But for some people, and this is really true, they will see this radical love and they will experience this radical love and be drawn to the Christian faith. Not everyone will, but some people will. They'll be drawn to the God whose love compels Christians to love their neighbors as themselves, to love people that others find unlovable. And this is why it's so terrible that Christians often fail to love, because then we lose that magnetic quality of our faith, a faith that draws people towards God. And I actually think a magnet is a really great analogy to be thinking of. Like a magnet attracts some things, and it also repels some things. It has a, a power to it both directions. And I think that's what a, a life of a Christian who loves others well looks like to some degree, like some kind of magnet. We need that, that drawing a capacity, but we can't forget that there is something about this radical love that also might make us off-putting to others. Okay, number two, second point, this love is self-sacrificing. This love is self-sacrificing. Our community and our relationship should be defined by love and a love that is self-sacrificing. First uh, John three sixteen says this, But by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So we're called not only to a love that looks different from the world, but also to a love that sacrifices. Uh, As a church and as believers, we want to be Christ-centered community defined by sacrificial love for one another. And I think when you, you say that, everyone thinks, man, that sounds great. I can get behind sacrificially, people sacrificially loving me. <laughs> um, but in practice, it's really difficult, right? Because it's not just others loving us sacrificially, but us loving sacrificially. Uh, we, can't, we can't be people who are easily offended to do this well. If we are to love selflessly, it's going to take time, it's going to take energy. We'll need to open our homes. We'll need to be the kind of people who take initiative and work hard to build friendships and relationships. Uh, the kind of people that keep pursuing others and relationships even when we're busy or overwhelmed. Uh, we are actually called to give our lives, to open ourselves up to hurt, to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of others. It's interesting, you know, the Bible talks about carrying one another's burdens, which all sounds great until it feels like a burden you're carrying. Like, oh, this person's really, like, pretty sure that's what it said. <laughs> um, we are to be people who forgive, who don't hold grudges, who have tough conversations with people, but who are marked by gentleness and graciousness. And the New Testament teaches this, Philippians, Philippians 2, verses 4 through 7, let me read it for you. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. Uh, In our relationships, we have the opportunity each day to love selflessly, to serve others, to not only consider our own needs, but also consider the needs of those around us. Uh, And one way that we can demonstrate this kind of love, uh, this kind of love that God's community was was made for, is to selflessly pursue friendship with others. And so I kind of want to do like a little aside like a little, what do you call this? Like a little, little, little mini sermon inside of the sermon uh, about how to make friends. And it's going to seem like this is really tactical, Nick. Um, but I want to talk about this because I can't tell you the number of times I have met people who said they're lonely here in San Francisco. Uh, maybe you're lonely because you're new and it's a tough place to meet people sometimes if you're new. Maybe you're lonely because if you've been here a long time, all your friends move away. You know what I mean? Like, but it's amazing to be in a place with so many people and feel people feel lonely. It's like we have an epidemic of lonely people. Uh, and you wouldn't know it sometimes. You look at people's like Instagram, they all look very happy from the outside, right? But you scratch the surface and you find loneliness in so many people. Uh, I've been in small groups. This is hilarious. 
uh, when, pe when, when multiple people in the small group are like telling me separately they're lonely and they don't have any strong friendships. And I'm like, could we get you guys together? Um, you know what I mean? Like, you're lonely, you're lonely, like let's... Anyways, uh, I'm honestly at a loss though at times for how to build the kind of friendships that are needed to thrive long-term in a city like San Francisco. But over the past like 11 or 12 years that I've been here, there's a few things I've learned that I think are helpful, uh, things that require intentionality and sacrifice. And so I want to get really practical for a few minutes on this idea. Uh, I've stolen this idea. Just come with, great. I love this. Uh, how, to keep in, how to make and keep making friends. So I'm taking something from Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, who's wonderful and died this year, uh, that he gave as kind of a spent over almost two, three decades in New York pastoring. Um, and this was some kind of practical advice for how to thrive in an urban context. I'm kind of taking it and adopting some of my own language. So how to keep, make and keep making friends. So again, why do we need this? Bay Area is one of the highest outward migrations of any region in the U.S. Uh, people are often moving out of here. At the same time, Bay Area is one of the highest inward migrations. So we just have a transient uh, city and region that we live in. And even now, post-pandemic world, right? We have layoffs happening. The Bay Area gets thousands of new people each year. Thousands of people are leaving every year. And if you've lived here for a while, you had the experience of making good friends, which is awesome, and then they leave, right? Or if you're brand new, you've had the experience of, I don't know anybody, and I feel lonely. So either way, this is a little refresher on how to make friends. Okay, so the idea of this graphic uh, is that there is a process to making new friends. Uh, if, if you have friends and you stop doing something like this process, eventually, because of the dynamics of San Francisco, you won't have any friends. They will move away and you will be lonely again, okay? Uh, if you get to this point and you haven't continued this process, you will be years away from having good friends as well. So I just want to say that this is a, another thing that happens. You find your people, you're like, yes, I got my posse, my crew, and then pandemic happens or some other thing or a job, and Google closes a site and now all your friends move. And so we need to be good at this. We need to be doing this constantly, learning how to make friends so that we don't end up lonely and isolated without community and deep relationships. Okay, so what are C-level friends? Do you see the C-level friends up there? This is not like a rating on their quality. I just needed a designation. They could be blue friends, but I just chose C. Uh, C-level friends are like acquaintances. People you have met, uh, you know their name, you meet at work or in the lobby at church, and you're like, that person's kind of cool. Like, uh, we share some interests, like, or we live one another, you know? Uh, we, you, they're like acquaintances that there might be like even a little spark of something more. And so what we need to be doing is regularly connecting with lots and lots of these C-level people so that we can graduate them to B-level friends. Uh, what are B-level friends? How do I get those? Uh, B-level friends are people, again, not a, they're not like B as in you know, less valuable than uh, you know, uh, A, but uh, they're people that as you get to know a little bit more, you learn about who they are, who they're dating or married to, you know their personal interests, you know their sports teams they're interested in, or maybe some of their hobbies, you begin to hang out maybe socially in a group. You might even like exchange numbers and connect via text or follow them on social media. And you know, you get B-level friends by graduating them from C-level, by taking steps to connect on a more personal level. Maybe you invite them to coffee or lunch or a beer. Maybe you invite them to a social gathering you're attending, a concert, sporting event, something you're doing serving in the city. Let's go on a hike together. You have to take these acquaintances and help them become some like initial friends. But then we ultimately want to get to sort of A-level friends. And so what are A-level friends? The people you graduate from B-level friends. But A-level people you can depend on if you need something. They're the people you are vulnerable with, who you can call in an emergency. They're the people you invite over to your house, like even when you haven't cleaned it up. Um, 
They are they're friends that we all long for, these like deep, life-giving friendships that give us a sense of community or belonging. And you have to, again, you get A-level friends by graduating them from B-level friends. And how do you do that? You maybe take the time to have a conversation at like a deeper level, or you share something vulnerable, like I'm really struggling with something, or here's an area I could, I could use your device. You ask them to pray for you, or maybe you pray for them, or you, you, know, you take like a next level of vulnerability. And again, you shouldn't do this with C-level friends necessarily, because they might think you're a weirdo, you know? but if you, if you have enough relationship to be vulnerable, you take that risk. Maybe you go on a trip together, you go to Yosemite, you take a hike, you go to Napa, and, and these are the kind of friendships that happen with time and consistency and increasing levels of vulnerability. And I just want to say about all this, this sounds like a really side thing, but if I was to say I want you all to thrive in San Francisco in the next 10 years, I want you all to do this. We all need to be doing this constantly. Or you will wake up with no friends and you'll be like, you know what, this is too expensive, this is too hard, I'm out of here, goodbye. Uh, but what the, the, the danger here is this takes a couple of years. And so a couple tips as you're thinking through making friends in a, in a city, in a transient city, you know. Number one, I'd say don't worry about having a best friend. Uh, we all want, like, this bestie down here that's, like, clinking imaginary champagne glasses because it's church and you want to Photoshop those out. Um, but whatever these people are doing in this picture, they're having a good time, right? They're clearly, like, having a good time. But the concept, I think, of like a single best friend is sometimes unhelpful in my mind. Uh, I think we should have three to four to five truly deep, intimate friendships, resilient, so you have some resiliency. Uh, second thing I'll say is don't compare your new friends who are, oh, 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 your C or B level. Did I break this? Your C or B level. Is it dead? All right, cool. Uh, don't compare your new friends who are C or B level to your old friends. Uh, back from college or from where you lived, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it's really easy when you meet like a C-level friend and an acquaintance or even a B-level friend to be like, well, they're not as good a friend as this friend. So, well, yeah, you've known them for like 10 minutes, you know what I mean? Or uh, you haven't had the time to be able to develop the kind of rapport and intimacy that you have with A-level friends. So don't compare new friends to old friends. And that's the easiest thing to do. You, you meet someone and you're like, well, they're not like my buddy in college. It's like, well, you guys like have spent... 10 years investing in a relationship, it's never gonna feel like that, right? It's gonna take time, and adult relationships often take more time than relationships we had when we were growing up, you know, because you just have, you have less, uh, it takes a long amount of time to put in the same kind of hours. And so adult friendships take time, years even develop. And then the, the third tip I would just say is like, always be graduating. Uh, I really mean this, like, with people in my world, my wife and I, we might like use this language. Like do a little inventory of your own friendship. Like where are you struggling? Do you have A-level friends but no B-level friends? Do you have C-level friends but no B or A-level friends? Uh, do all of your A-level friends live somewhere else? And, and begin to almost like map people onto this, you know, and say like, I mean, here's someone that I think is kind of cool and interesting. I bet I could like, over the next year, like graduate them from a C-level to a B-level friend. It's us, we have to be reciprocal too. Um, but I, I honestly feel like this is a, a really helpful, almost like tactical framework you could use with people in your life to say like, how do we get out of being lonely and isolated? Like do this over time. And again, it might take a couple years. Um, it might be challenging, but I really think that this can really be helpful. So uh, in order to do this, we have to give up time. We have to give up comfort. We have to open up our homes. We have to be selfless. Uh, that's the other thing I will maybe bring it back into the message here. Um, you know, sometimes people are like, well, no one ever asked me to hang out. You know, no one's ever asking me to go to coffee. It's like, okay, get over yourself. That's fine. 
be the person who asks somebody. Be the person who asks multiple times. Be the person who's like, it's a little awkward, but you want to hang out? Um, you know, don't wait. Be selfless. Go ahead and take the risk to hang out and to get to people, know people better. And I think if increasingly we're all doing this, I really believe we won't have people being lonely, isolated, and uncared for. If we all do this, there will be a place for everyone. I really do believe that the church is designed to be an inclusive community, but it requires each of us individually doing something like this, making space for others all the time. So take that for what's worth. Discuss it with your spouse, your friends, small group. Make a plan. Develop your friendships. Uh, It's a weird little tip, side note of a sermon, but I think it's been really helpful for me, so I want to give it to you. Okay, third point, we're halfway through, if not farther. We don't only need relationships that are intentional and selfless. Our community relationships should also be defined by a love that is Christ-centered, a love that's Christ-centered. I just explained a good deal about how to make friends, and many of those principles are valid in any kind of friendship, right? They're valid for Christians or not Christians. But one thing that uniquely defines Christian community is that it's it's defined by and powered by a love that is Christ-centered. This is a love that's not just based on mutual enjoyment. It's not centered on shared affinity or interests only. It's actually centered on Jesus. Uh, That's why we can actually have authentic Christian community with people who are radically different than us. Because what unites us isn't our common interests or our attraction to one another, but our common savior and our mutual affection for him. Uh, Man, the number of times that that, people have become dear friends because of our shared faith commitment that would never have been friends because of our shared basketball interests or something, you know, is, is amazing to me. But there's something unique about this Christ-centeredness that even surpasses all these other surface-level things that we often have with other people. And this is how John imagines for us to be learning how to love by remembering Christ's love for us and his example and then applying that example out into our lives. Uh, how different is Jesus's love than our, like, our, like, gut-flesh-human love? Uh, the difference between Jesus and me are, is, is more different than any other, myself and any other human on the earth. And yet he loves me. He gave his life for us, and then we are to go and give our lives for others. Uh, we consider that he pursued relationship with us, and then we go and pursue relationship with others. We remember that he was patient, that he forgave. We look at how he treats us, and then we go and we treat others the same. I think if we lose this Christ-centric nature, we forget to remember him, we'll eventually lose the motivation and the model of how to love one another. It'll become like, man, this person's kind of a drag, or this person hurt me once, or whatever. And there's no mechanism to get things back on the rails that sometimes Christianity provides. And so we need to be actively in a loving relationship with God that's made possible through faith in Jesus and be constantly allowing that relationship to influence how we love one another. It's all interdependent. It's hard to not forgive someone when you realize how much God has forgiven you through Christ. We need to be constantly going back to the Bible, constantly going back to Christ in prayer, You know, when we are inconsistent, we go to Christ and we ask him for forgiveness and renewed diligence. When we're selfish and overly self-protected, we need to go back and ask Christ to help him renew, have him renew our hearts and to give us like a love beyond ourselves. I think in the pandemic, uh, I think for my wife and I, it's like our world got small and that was good for a season. And then we got selfish and just we needed we need to be reminded of the need to love others outside of this, this little bubble that we had. Uh, when we love our ideal of a Christian community more than our actual Christian community, uh, we need to be reminded of Christ's actual love and sacrifice for real, non-ideal people, including ourselves. Uh, when we're stuck and we experience conflict, we must look back and see how Christ was tender and forgiving and yet also courageous and bold. 
when our relational world becomes homogeneous, we need to remember how uh, Christ broke down barriers and had a diverse community of relationships. When we've stopped pursuing relationships, we need to remember that Christ never stops pursuing us. And so there's something about having a rich relationship with Christ that can help us, if done well, uh, love others in an enduring way. And so I, I don't want us to lose that, um, that piece. It's so critical to find that ongoing motivation and kind of corrective course that Jesus provides. Okay, last thing. Our community relationship should be defined by love number four that is tangible. A love that is tangible. The love that God made this community for, made sanctuary for, is much more than just warm feelings towards one another. It's not just talk. Uh, it's a love that's supposed to be tangible. It should be visible. First uh, John three seventeen and 18 says this. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The love God made us for, the love that he wants to define our community relationships uh, by, it should show up in our calendars. It should show up in our bank accounts. Uh, there's a, I'm going to tell the story. I'm, I'm kind of being recorded, but I'm, Yeah. There's a, there's a very famous pastor, uh, I'll just say it, it's Francis Chan. So you guys know who Francis Chan is. He's written a bunch of books. He does like a home group thing here in the southeast part of San Francisco. Uh, his brother I met one time, and uh, his brother is an accountant. He works for another Christian ministry, and his, his brother does like taxes and stuff. And he said, uh, you know, man, I, I would do Francis's taxes like back before Francis was ever famous. And I would say to him like, you're spending too much money. You're like giving too much money away. Like you're like hurting your family. You're going to like wreck your family. You're not going to have anything to provide for your parent, our parent, you know, like you need to stop giving. And he's like, this guy is also a Christian leader, <laughs> you know? And he said, and, and Francis would just be like, I just feel like if I give away, God will provide, you know, and I want to love other people. And it's just this. And, and he, so, so what his, his brother's point was, it's not a surprise to me that God has like richly blessed Francis because Francis, he's the most generous person I know and he was generous before and he's generous now. And so it's like laughable to think kind of with Francis that he couldn't you know, provide for people now or something, but he was doing that. And so our love for others, our love for God should show up in our bank accounts, how we spend money, how we do things. And that's really countercultural. That is really different than what happens here in the Bay Area where there's uh, you know, an infatuation with investing and with all different kinds of things, but our love should show up in really tangible ways. It should be looking like making meals for someone when they have a baby or in the middle of a tough season. I mean, uh, you know, Tim has been able to experience that. It's pooling money together to help someone in your small group afford to fly home during the holidays to be with their family. Um, everything I'm going to give you is an example of something that happened in my own personal small groups, like in the last 10 years. It's organizing a basketball game or a hike or a brunch or drinks after work to help C turn C-level friends into B-level friends. It's walking with someone uh, who doesn't have a home, who's journeying with them through the complexities of homelessness, helping them learn how to save money, helping them find a home. In this previous church that I was a part of in San Francisco, I watched this incredible group of men in our church slowly help this brother a dear brother in our church moved from, he had a lot of mental, mental health issues um, and moved from being unhoused to having a secure home. And I really, really like most meaningful moments in my life. Like I remember the dignity that this brother had uh, and the pride he had and exuded when, when I went to visit his like little studio, tiny studio apartment. I mean like comically small house that was his own. And I, I went to his house and I just remember just thinking this fruit of this person for years who people walked with and helped and like basically taught how to not lose all of his money. You know what I mean? This, this group of men came around this guy and moved him from 
being unhoused to having a secure home. And sometimes you look out in San Francisco and it seems impossible, but I know at least for this one person it was possible. And it happened through the love of a Christian community of just four or five regular dudes. No major program. We're not a big church. We didn't have some like extra special. These are just guys who said, how can we help this guy in our church? And it worked. Can we do that? Uh, loving people. It's not always dramatic things. Love can be tangible and simple. It's families inviting singles over for the chaos of dinner with kids. It's single people inviting families over to cram into a tiny apartment for a meal on uncomfortable seats, right? It's listening for hours to someone when they need to get stuff off their chest. It's uh, picking someone up when they're in trouble and they need help to get to a safe place. It's inviting people you barely know out to lunch after church. It's offering to babysit for tired parents who need a break. It's volunteering at a church or a nonprofit and giving your time to serve others. It's finding someone new to meet on a Sunday and inducing, introducing them to other people, not just talking to the people you know. Uh, it's leaving the small group or the, or the church community you love to step up and lead something new, to make room for more people to find the community that God made them for. Uh, it's choosing to stay in San Francisco because people need a consistent community, even when you could live more comfortably in a cheaper city. It's having the courage to take the next step in your relationship with God or your friendship with someone else. These are all things that I've seen in my own life, people in my immediate world or small group. I didn't want to cherry pick like examples of just, I'm like looking through my own small group in history in the last 11 years. These are all things that I've seen people do. They're tangible ways that I've seen believers love one another. And I want to encourage you here to not lose heart, to continue to love God and to love each other in a tangible way. This is the kind of community that God designs for sanctuary. It's the kind of community that God enables for us through the love that he lavishes on us in Jesus Christ. It's his vision for sanctuary. It's his vision for you to be a part of this kind of community. And friends, this is the kind of savior that God offers us to you. What's good about this community, what's good about that vision is ultimately what we find in Jesus. This countercultural, self-sacrificing, love-giving savior uh, who tangibly gave himself on our behalf. So friends, let's love one another. Let's love Christ as he first loved us and demonstrated ultimately on the cross how the extent of his love. So thanks for having me. Jesus, I want to thank you for your grace uh, to each of us and for your call to be a part of this inclusive community of love that radically changes the world. And it may not look radical on a small scale, Lord, but over time we see how your church can change the world. How friends loving you and loving each other and loving others can really be a radical difference maker in this world. So God, I pray that you would light a fire in each of us to be the kind of friend that Christ has been to us. To be the kind of community that you call us to be. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. If we can be of any help to you, please don't hesitate to contact us at hello at sanctuarysf.com. We would love to connect. And wherever this finds you, may you experience the grace and peace of God our Father 